Okay, let's hear the word of God. Psalm 100, a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. So we're doing this uh, mini-series on um, worship uh, just uh, over the school holidays, and uh, we're asking the question, what is at the heart of worship? Okay, we've all, we've all been created to worship the God who made us, but the question is, how does that happen in your life? How do you, you know, how do you, get the drive to want to worship and serve God with all of your life. See, that's, that's what we're asking. What is at the heart of worship? And last week when we looked at Psalm 99, we realized that the very heart of worship, the number one thing that you need to be stirred up to worship God is you need to encounter God as holy. Okay? Because when you encounter God in His holiness, that produces in you awe. Okay? A-W-E, awe. And it produces adoration. And that's the very heart of uh, what it means to uh, worship God, uh, awe and adoration. But then today in Psalm 100, we see that right next to um, encountering the holiness of God, what we also need is to encounter God in his goodness. The goodness of God, which is essentially what Psalm uh, 100 is about. Because when you encounter the goodness of God, do you know what that stirs up in you? Gratitude. See, we're to worship God out of awe, but also out of gratitude. To be so thankful for being able to know Him, being thankful for the way that He works in our lives and for what He has done for us uh, in the gospel. And so that's why this psalm, it is a psalm calling us to worship, but it is a psalm, as the title says, for giving thanks. So we need to know what God is like and what he has done for us so that we are moved to worship him out of thanks. Now, just if you look at the psalm, just so you know where we're going, this psalm, it has two parts to it. So uh, there's uh, verses 1 to 3 is the first section. And there you can see that there are three calls to worship followed by three reasons why we should worship. And the focus of that section is on the God, uh, on who God is to us. So who God is. And then this, the next section, which is in verses 4 and 5, uh, that the same cycle repeats. There are three calls to worship, followed by three reasons why. And there the focus is on what God is like uh, toward us. And so that's our two points today. Uh, just two points. Uh, who God is. And then what he is like to us. But we'll add a third by asking the question, um, what difference will that make to our lives? You know, I can't cope unless I have three points. Uh, so what, what difference will it make? Okay, so first of all, why should we worship God? Because of who he is to us. That's our first point. 
who God is to us. So verses 1 to 3. Now you can see it begins with this threefold call to worship, which says, uh, make a joyful noise to the Lord, uh, all the earth, serve the Lord with gladness, come into his presence with singing. Now what stands out in this call to worship is the sense of excitement, the sen- the, the, just the thrill of being able to come before God. You know, the mood in these verses, it actually reminds me of uh, when my children were much younger and uh, we would be preparing to go uh, to um, Jasmine's parents for the week. And, you know, for the children, going to grandma and grandpa's place means only one thing, being absolutely spoiled rotten for a whole week. And so, you know, every day it'd be trips to the cafe, milkshakes, ice cream, no, no request refused, uh, daily outings to the most wonderful places, so many adventures. Uh, and so, you know, when we would be getting um, ready, you know, the build-up uh, to going to grandma and grandpa's for the week, it would just be unbearable, the noise, the excitement, the, the joyful noises, the gladness, the singing. See all those words in this psalm. And, and to be honest, Jasmine and I actually used to find it a bit uh, irritating <laughs> because you couldn't think straight when you're trying to prepare. And so we had this system that we would employ every now and then, which would be we wouldn't tell the children that we were going until the car was packed. And we say, right, everyone in the car. And they go, why? Where, where are we going? Grandma and grandpa's. Wow! <laughs> It'd be this great excitement. See that? But that joy, the gladness, the singing, that's what should characterize us in God's presence when we think about coming to worship him. It's that sort of thrill, that, that excitement. Now, in the historical context, uh, this psalm, it was actually a call to the people to come to the temple to worship God. And uh, in uh, Israelites, uh, in, their, you know, in that time, uh, there were um, a number of feasts that involved going to the temple and, uh, uh, and some commentators actually like to point out that this um, heading, a psalm for giving thanks, it actually uses wording that is linked with one of the particular sacrifices, which was the, uh, the peace offering. Uh, and uh, so there was a certain occasion that went with this psalm. But clearly the occasion isn't the focus of this psalm. What is the focus is the mood. You know, that, that feeling of, of just just overflowing with joy, you know, just the sense of, wow, we can go to be in God's presence. And the joy and the gladness, it just bubbles up into this outburst of praise in songs, singing. See, coming to his presence uh, with singing. Now, the question is, how do you get that? How, How do you have that mood in your own heart? So that when you gather for worship, that that's actually you know, what's actually going on. We're not just sitting here going through motions, um, but that we're actually engaging in this joyful praise. How do you get that? And the answer is in verse 3. Because verse 3 gives us three reasons uh, that we praise God, and they, they all have to do with who God is to us. Who God is to us. So let's look at these three aspects of who God is. So first one, know that the Lord... He is God. The Lord, He is God. Now, in some ways, that might seem like a fairly obvious thing to say. You know, the Lord is God. You know, of course, God is God. <clears throat> but it is actually saying, the Lord, 
He is God. So it's saying, uh, this is using God's personal name. So see how it's in, actually it's not there, but don't look at that. Look at your um, Bible. Notice how it's in small capitals. Uh, in verse 3, know that the Lord, it's in small capitals. That's the Bible translation's way of alerting us to the fact that this is God's personal name. This is that name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. And this is the name that God only makes known to the people that he's in a relationship with, the people that he's, he's committed to in, in a covenant relationship. And it's saying, this God that you know personally... He is God. He's the God of the whole universe. He's not just a little God that happens to be, you know, in our lives. He's the God who rules over absolutely everything. And for the Israelites um, back in the day, they, uh, you know, they were a nation surrounded by other nations. All those other nations had all of their, their gods and, and things like that. And, and what this is saying, though, that all of those gods out there, they're actually not gods. They're just idols. Because there is only one true and living God, and you know him personally. Okay, the Lord who rules over the whole universe. You know him on a first name basis, the Lord. And therefore, it's only those who do know uh, God personally and know him by name who come to know how praiseworthy he is, just how wonderful he is. And so, you know, sometimes we, if we ever come in here with a cold heart, what's going on? We've actually forgotten how incredible it is that we can know the God of the universe personally. We have a personal relationship with him. That alone should just thrill us. So that's the first one. Know that the Lord, he is God. That's also why um, in verse 1, uh, the invitation wasn't just to the Israelites, it was to all the earth. Because there is only one God, and he rules over everyone, every single person in the whole universe, you know, all creatures of our God and King. Everyone ought to be praising and worshipping the Lord because he's the only God there is. But we know him personally, and therefore we are absolutely thrilled to be able to come into his presence. Now, second, it says, it is he who made us, and we are his. So, you know, this... God, there's only one God. He is our creator, so he made us. Uh, that means um, God is not the invention of our minds. Um, it's actually the other way around. He, we're the invention of his mind. Uh, and he's the one who gives us life. Therefore, he is the one who owns us. See, we are his. However, there's a unique sense in which this verse is talking about uh, God making us and us belonging to him because... You can only belong to God in a personal relationship only through the gospel. And that's what this is getting at. Because essentially all of us, because of our sin, what, are, what happens? We're separated from God. We, we, we can't come into his presence because of our sin. And, and so the only way we can be made by him is to be made right by him. You know, the only way we can actually come into a relationship with him if he makes us right if he makes us his own. And he's done that through the gospel. See, the solution for our sin, it can't come from us because we're lost, we're helpless, we're, we're dead, spiritually dead in our sin. We can't change ourselves. But this God, 
He's the God who saves sinners, who reaches out and makes them right with him so that we can belong to him. And so that's the second reason. It is he who made us and we are his. We're his by way of creation, but we're also his by way of salvation. And here's another reason why we can be praising God out of joy. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And here's this, this metaphor of a shepherd and sheep. And the Bible often uses this to describe the relationship that God has with his people. Because, you know, out of all the animals that are out there, you know, think about sheep. Can sheep exist in a happy, healthy life just on their own? Probably not. Because they don't have big claws, they don't have sharp teeth, uh, they're not as agile as a lot of the other creatures out there. And so the only way a sheep can really thrive and uh, enjoy um, a happy existence is if they have a shepherd, a shepherd who looks after them, a shepherd who, who invests in them and who cares for them and provides for them and, and leads them to where they need to go. And see, so the Bible takes that, that image and says that's what it's like to belong to this God. He's your shepherd. And therefore, he provides for you. He cares for you. He leads you. And uh, he will never abandon you. You know, even when you're in big trouble, even when you wander off, he won't just go, ah, well, there goes another one. No, he will go after you because he cares for you. He will go and find you and bring you back. And see, this, this is the God. This is who God is toward us. This is the God we come to worship. He's the creator. He's the saviour. He's the shepherd. And we know him by name. He is the Lord. And see, this psalm is saying that we were made to belong to him and to find our deepest joy in worshipping and serving him. That's where joy is to be found. See, if you have a life without praise, a life without God, what does that ultimately lead to? It's empty. It's ultimately, that's a life that is empty. Because this is what we were created for. This is where true joy and satisfaction is found, only in worshipping the Lord. And see, this psalm is saying that really everything we have, our very existence, we owe it all to God. And therefore, how does life work? when we're in this relationship with the Lord where we, we just are praising and thanking him. This is what life is about. See, this is the God who made us. And when we know him like this, no wonder coming to, into his presence, it's like going to grandma and grandpa's for the week. It is just unbelievably amazing. So that's the first thing, who God is to us. That's why we worship him. Now the second one, this second section, uh, here we see that we can worship God because of what he is like toward us. What he is like toward us. And so now we're not so much thinking about God's titles, you know, titles like creator, saviour, shepherd, but now we're thinking about the way God treats us. How does he treat us when we belong to him? Well, this is in verses 4 and 5. Now, again, it starts, first of all, with a call to worship. In verse 4, and yet this time the call to worship, it's, it's more of a call focused on th coming with thanksgiving. 
See verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. Now in some ways that does sort of look back to the last verse. You know that God is our creator, saviour and shepherd. But it's also looking forward to verse 5. Because in verse 5 we see why it is we should come with, with thanksgiving in our hearts. Because of what God is like toward us. So what is God like toward us? We'll have a look at verse 5. Here's the first one. For the Lord is good. The Lord is good. Now that word good, usually it's not a very um, uh, flavoursome word. It's, not, it's fairly nondescript. You know, if you ask your children, how was your day today? Good. What does that mean? Good usually just means it was a normal day. You know, I didn't get run over. I um, didn't lose my phone, um, I made it home, therefore it was a good day, good. So it just means, you know, normal, no, nothing too eventful. But what about when the Bible says the Lord is good? Then what does that mean? The Lord is good. Well, it means that there is nothing in God that is bad. And that alone, it's just incredible. See, just, just imagine for a moment if there was some badness in God. You know, if he wasn't entirely good. Just imagine, could you trust him? If you know that there's a little hint of badness, could you really trust him? What if he's having a bad day? Could you believe everything he says? Well, I don't know. There's always going to be a hint of doubt. But see, the Lord, what is he? He is good. So, Everything he does, everything he says, it all flows out of who he is and what is he? He is good. Okay, there is no shadow, uh, James says, in, in the Lord, which is a way of saying there's not a hint of badness. Everything he does is good because it all flows out of his goodness. And so that means the way that God relates to us is always good. The gifts that he gives to us are always good. The way that he organises our lives, always good. In fact, Romans 8.28, it gets to the cross by saying that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. See, the way God arranges our lives, it's all for a good. All comes out of his goodness. I mean, that might not seem like that when you're in the middle of um, something difficult, like, you know, if you're going through... Uh, some hor horrible form of suffering, and you wonder, how on earth can this be good? You know, how can God be good if he's brought this into my life? And yet, we're assured in the Bible that ultimately, at the end, that we will see that God did actually work for good, even in that very difficult time. I mean, we already have the assurance of that at the cross of Jesus, because if, if there was ever a horrible thing happen... You know, the worst thing that happened was when the Son of God was crucified on a cross. I mean, what could be worse than that? And yet God was doing the greatest thing through the cross. And so when we look at the cross, we have that assurance. Yes, God can bring good out of evil. God can bring good out of suffering. And so we have that assurance because God is good. Ultimately, what was true at the cross, God bringing good out of evil, that will be true of everything in your life. 
when you belong to him. Because the Lord is good. Now, God's goodness, it is actually hard for us to rest in. It, it, it's, you know, it's, it's difficult to actually rest in the fact that God is good. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the very heart of the first sin, the very first sin that happened in the world, at the very heart of it was to doubt God's goodness. Okay, that's what Satan tempted Eve into when he questioned God's goodness to Eve. He said to Eve, you know, don't you think God is holding out on you by saying you can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Don't you think God is, you know, he's been a little bit mean. Why is he doing that? And then Eve, and she thought about it, and she looked at the tree, and she thought, hmm, maybe God is holding out. So what happened? She started to doubt God's goodness. She started to doubt his character, and that uh, led to her then doubting God's word. And then that led to thinking, well, maybe I know better than God. And so she took some fruit, gave it to Adam. And see, the doubt led to disobedience. And now that you know, Adam and Eve brought sin into the world, it means that we're all born with a sin nature, which means we inherently have a suspicion of God's goodness. We, we, we fear that maybe he isn't good. We fear that his commands are given to us to burden us. Now we fear that his plan, that the way he, he organises our, our lives, that maybe he's actually out to crush us. See, we struggle with his goodness. But this psalm is reminding us, no, God doesn't change. He's always been good. He always will, even when it's hard to see that in the middle of the experiences we go through. We always know him and he is good. The Lord is good. You can be thankful because the Lord is good. Another reason you can be thankful is because his steadfast love endures forever. God's steadfast love uh, how often does the Bible use that phrase, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever? I think there's a psalm that repeats it like, um, I didn't count how many times, but it's talked about over and over in the Bible because you know, when it comes to the very heart of how does God relate to us in the gospel, it's this, he's, he's, it's steadfast love. And <clears throat> steadfast love, that refers not just to God's affection for you but his his um, devotion to you as well <clears throat> if you belong to him <clears throat> excuse me if you belong to him his his love toward you is one that never changes never grows cold uh, the way he treats you is it's only ever according to love uh, which is another way of saying he only treats you according to grace and mercy. He doesn't treat you based on your performance. And I know that's how we tend to think. You know, we look at our failings and we think that now that I've given into temptation again, that now God's love for me has gone down and I've got to somehow get it back up again. I've got to, you know, work a bit harder. And so here's another thing we, we struggle to rest in God's steadfast love. When we're overwhelmed by our sin, we assume that when, he, when God's looking at us, that he's looking at us with a huge frown on his face. Or that maybe he's just um, given up on us altogether. 
or when circumstances are really difficult in life, we assume that God's love must have gone down. Or that he must be loving someone else now. He's sort of forgotten about us. But see, this is telling us God's love, it doesn't rise and fall like the tide. God's love is steadfast. And steadfast means unwavering. That's so different to our love. Our love for God, it goes up and down. It's all over the place. And yet God's love is just its like a perfect line. It never changes. It's steadfast love. Which means he is committed, absolutely. Uh, that's why I love that, um, <clears throat> that passage in Lamentations. I think it's the only bit of Lamentations <laughs> that we know. Um, but it says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Never ceases. It says his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Hey, um, this week I saw this photo of the sun. And, uh, you know, it's this massive thing. They had all the dimensions and things. Uh, and, um, you know, this sun just keeps burning and burning and burning. It seems like it could never go out. Apparently, it is actually uh, running down. But the time frame's so long that we don't have to be too fussed about it. But, you know, you look at it, it's, just, it's going and going on and on and on and on. God's love goes on longer. Okay? Never ceases his mercies are new every morning, every morning. See, God's steadfast love endures forever. So that's, that's, that's the very heart of how he relates to, to you in the gospel. You've really got nothing to fear because that's how he's committed to you. Now, the third one, though, is his faithfulness is to all generations. And God's faithfulness, it's reminding us that he's always the same. God always keeps his promises. You can trust everything he says because he is trustworthy. That's another way of saying he is faithful. It means that God is absolutely dependable. You can entrust your life to him. You can essentially say to God, whatever you plan out for my life, whatever you do, I can rest in you. I can trust you with that. Do you know when um, Jasmine and I went to um, Bali many, many years ago, uh, when we got off the, the uh, jet at the airport, uh, we walked out of the airport and we met this bloke who was holding a sign and the sign had our names on it. And so we um, followed this guy. He couldn't speak English. And uh, we followed him to a car. He took our luggage. He put it in the boot. He uh, motioned to get in. And so we hopped in the car and we started driving. And I tell you, it was absolutely terrifying. I'd never seen such chaotic traffic. Now, every car is beep, constantly beeping the horn at you. Uh, you just wonder, how on earth can anyone survive the roads in Bali? And, uh, and we had no idea if we were even going in the right direction because we just got off a plane. We had no bearings or anything. And so here we are sitting in the back of this car wondering, are we even going to get to wherever we're actually going? And see, life can sometimes feel like that. You know, sometimes life can feel like you're just out of control. You're not in the driver's seat. You just, it feels like you're getting taken for a ride and you don't know what the next twist or turn is going to bring. You don't know if you're ever going to get to wherever you're going safely. It's what life can feel like. But listen, the only thing that matters is who is in the driver's seat and whether that 
person in the driver's seat is actually trustworthy. Now in Bali, it turns out the driver was. <laughs> we got to our destination safely. Uh, but look, God, he is in the driver's seat of your life. And you can relax. Okay, You can trust him. He's faithful through all generations. Which means that even when you can't see, how could God's promises, how on earth could they be fulfilled in my life? When you just cannot know how that can happen, here's what you can know. You can know God. You can know what he is like toward you, and therefore you can trust him. He is faithful. He will do what he says. And so verse 5, it says, The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. And so we get to the end of the psalm, and we have to ask the question, do you know God like that? Do you know him in that way? Do you know his goodness? Do you know his steadfast love? Do you know his faithfulness? Well, we could put the question another way. How can you be sure that these amazing characteristics of God, how can you be sure that they are directed toward you personally? How do you absolutely know, yep, that's how God is toward me? How do you know that? Well, let's let the psalm answer that. <clears throat> Look again at um, the invitation in verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. And uh, here, remember this is talking in its original context. The Israelites would have read this and they would have heard that as an invitation to come to the temple. And it says, enter his gates with thanksgiving. So that's the outer part of the temple. And then come into his courts with praise. So that's, you know, it's like a progression going from the outside to the inside. And so verse 4, it really is an invitation from God saying, come in. You know, come closer. Come to me. Come and get to know me. Come and enjoy my presence. It's the invitation in. But then the question is, could, could the Israelites back then, could they get all the way in? Could they get into the very inner sanctum, you know, the holy of holies, the very throne room of the king? Could they get all the way in? And the answer was no. Only the high priest, once a year, we talked about this last week, only once a year could the high priest go in behind that, that huge curtain, but he could only go in with the blood of a sacrifice. That was the only way that anyone could go all the way in. Uh, for everyone else, there was that massive curtain, and the curtain set a limit on how far people could get, or how close people get to God. And the reason is that is because the story of the Bible, it's actually not a story of us drawing near to God. The story of the Bible is actually the story of God drawing near to us. And when God did finally come into the world, when he actually came in person so that you could know him personally, you could actually touch him. Hey, when he finally came, what did he say? Where, where do you go to worship God now? Remember how you had that conversation with the woman and she's saying, you know, some say it's in um, uh, one place, Samaria, and others are saying Jerusalem. And what do you think, Jesus? And he says, look, a time is coming and has now come when the worshippers will worship in spirit and in truth. And then we read that other section in John where Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. And John adds that he was talking about himself, his body. 
And so what's Jesus saying there? He's saying to worship God, you don't have to go to a certain location now. Where do you need to go? You need to go to Jesus. Because Jesus is the true temple. He is the place where you go to meet God because he is God. And Jesus is not only the true temple, he's the true sacrifice that, who gives us access into God's presence, not just up to a curtain. Remember, the curtain was torn in two. We have access all the way in. That's how you approach God now. How do you gather for worship? You can only come through Jesus. And see, what has Jesus done for his people? Well, he is the good shepherd that verse 3 talked about. And what did the good shepherd do? He laid his life down for his sheep. And see, when you know Jesus has done that for you, when you trust that he has done that for you personally, that's when you know that when, when it says the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness continues, you know that when that's spoken, it's actually spoken to you. It's like a letter written to you personally saying, this is what God is like to you. You can be absolutely sure because he's died for you. That's the confidence we have. And see, when, when you have that, do you see how that changes everything? You know, we were created to worship and serve God. How do you get the drive to do that? Well, when you know what God has done for you in the cross of Christ, how do you come? You come, like it says in verse 4, with thanksgiving. Okay? You enter his courts with praise. We give thanks and bless his name. Why? Because he's been so good. He's given his only son. And so even if we have nothing else good in life, if we have Christ, we have everything. Everything we could ever want, need or imagine. Because we have peace with God, we have fellowship with Father, Son and Holy Spirit. It's all given to us in Christ. And that is so helpful for how we do think about corporate worship. You know, what we're doing today, when we gather on the Lord's Day to worship God, you know, what if you come in here and you just don't feel like praising God? You know, what if there is no joy in your heart? What if uh, you've had a really rough week? And, and there's things going on in your life that has made you sad. And it feels like if you were to come in here with gladness, that would almost kind of be like fake. And you think, you know, God doesn't want us to be fake, and so I'll just come in here sullen and, you know, I'll, just, I'll go through the motions, I'll go home. And How can we, you know, even in that, how can we actually embrace what this psalm is calling us to do? To have joy and gladness. How can we sing Look, God understands sadness. Why do you think most of the songs in the songbook, the Psalms, are all about pain and sorrow? See, God gets it. But in Psalm 100, he's just saying to us, look, just stop and look. Look at what the Lord has done for you. Look at what he is like for you. Okay, just have a look long enough until your heart is warmed. Until you realise, yes, he has been good to me. His steadfast love will never fail. He has been faithful. So you just have a look long enough to the point where you can say, I can give thanks because the Lord has been good to me. Okay, that's how you do it.
And that's what causes us to sing for joy. That's what puts the gladness into worship. And you can do that even in the midst of sorrow. Okay, so many of the psalms are psalms of worshipping God with tears running down your face. But it's still worship. It's still joy because we have a saviour. So you enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. That's how we worship God, out of thanks. 